This is a Federal News Network podcast. By most accounts, federal agencies have made great strides since last May's cyber executive order. Still, at the one-year mark, lawmakers pressed Biden administration officials over whether agencies have done enough to defend critical networks from cyber attacks. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, that cyber EO followed on the heels of the whole solar winds hack. That might have been coincidental, but it affected a lot of agencies. So what is the general consensus on the improvements they have made so far? Yeah, well, perhaps not surprisingly, officials feel they've made tremendous progress over the past year since the cyber executive order was signed. House Homelands, the House Homeland Security Committee held a hearing on the issue on Tuesday, just a few days after the anniversary of the cyber EO. Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris Darusha cited progress on some key measures, including multi-factor authentication and encryption at rest and in transit. We picked a few of these measures that have most impact and have put the highest amount of priority you could have around them, uh, metricing them, uh, having engagements with not just CIOs and CISOs, but uh, senior agency leadership, multiple meetings with deputy secretaries, tracking, measuring progress, learning about their barriers to success, how we can support and work, work through those. And that's Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris Darusha, who invented a new verb to metric something, metricing. Thank you for that, Chris. And Justin, were lawmakers satisfied with what they heard? Well, not entirely. You know, they, they have given by the Biden administration plaudits for kind of sparking so much action here across the executive branch when it comes to cybersecurity. But several noted that agencies have missed some deadlines under the cyber EO. Representative Richie Torres from New York noted agencies have made limited progress in adopting multi-factor authentication, for instance, despite the executive order's mandate to do so by last November. He cited a January letter from CISA director Jen Easterly stating only 13 agencies, including just one CFO Act agency, one of the big ones, had fully adopted it across their enterprises. Now, Easterly committed in that same letter that all agencies who could do so would adopt MFA by mid-March. Torres pressed CISA Executive Assistant Director Eric Goldstein on the progress under that goal. We have seen agencies invest significant amounts and make significant progress in deploying MFA uh, wherever possible and encrypting data both in transit and at rest. Now, we know that given the significant breadth of legacy, outdated IT infrastructure across federal agencies, at times deploying modern security controls can be challenging. I would say every agency with the capacity to deploy MFA and encryption has done so in almost all cases. And again, that's Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA. Now, we're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. What about CISA's expanded role in leading cybersecurity operations? They pretty much have the entire civilian side of the government in their hands. Yeah, that's been a big priority for lawmakers, especially on the Homeland Security Committee. And it seems as if CISA is having some success in actually monitoring the federal civilian executive branch and all those agencies therein. Uh, An October memo from the White House directed agencies to provide CISA with access to their endpoint detection and response tools or to actually use the tools that CISA offers. Goldstein says CISA is in the process of deploying those EDR tools across 26 agencies and expects to be underway at 53 agencies by the end of this fiscal year in September. He also says CISA is modernizing the Einstein system for detecting and blocking cyber intrusions. 
And they're also modernizing their agreements with agencies for continuous diagnostics and mitigation. Goldstein says most agencies expect to be connected to the CDM dashboards by the end of this fiscal year again. Nearly all uh, large agencies, uh, what we call the CFO Act agencies, uh, are now connected and we are getting these smaller and medium uh, agencies uh, connected up as each week goes by. And this really is the first time that CISA and federal agencies have had this level of visibility and we are really excited for how we can use it uh, both operationally and also to one of the prior questions to support our colleagues in OMB and the Office of the National Cyber Director in understanding and measuring federal cybersecurity risk. Yeah, so they've been working on Einstein and continuous diagnostics and mitigation. CDM and Einstein, those words haven't come up that much lately in the zero trust, multi-factor authentication, post-EO era. So those seem very much alive. And what about agencies' management of the new cyber vulnerabilities as they do crop up, the zero-day issues? Right. So last November, CISA directed agencies to follow a new patch management process under a binding operational directive where there's this catalog of cyber vulnerabilities that's continuously updated. So instead of issuing a directive for every one-off vulnerability that crops up, agencies have to monitor this list. And as these new flaws come in and are added to the list because of their criticality, they have to patch those within set timeframes. And so this wasn't directly stemming from the cybersecurity executive order, but it was yet another major development when it comes to how agencies do cybersecurity over the last year. Here's Goldstein again talking about that process. Across the federal civilian executive branch, we are tracking mitigation of hundreds of thousands of vulnerable instances. These are individual pieces of software or products with with vulnerabilities that uh, we know are being exploited in the wild. At the same time, we've also identified that there's actually a small number of vulnerabilities that account for the preponderance of unmitigated vulnerabilities, what we call residual risk, across the federal civilian executive branch, therefore allowing agencies uh, to prioritize their resources to most effect. And that's Eric Goldstein of CISA. One final question, Justin, did zero trust come up in the hearing? Because that seems to be the main pillar of the executive order. It did. There have been a number of crucial areas, multi-factor authentication that agencies have been trying to make up ground on, but they're also turning their attention to a longer term zero trust security architecture in the future. They actually submitted their plans, agencies submitted their plans to the White House earlier this spring. Chris Darusha says that OMB and CISA and the Office of the National Cyber Director are reviewing those plans and they're going to get specific with each agency and hold them accountable over these next few years. Zero wiggle room on zero trust. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to 
as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.